Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. So we are in 2 Samuel chapter 14. It reads, So Joab the son of Zeruiah perceived that the king's heart was concerned about Absalom. And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman. And he said to her, Please pretend to be a mourner and put on the mourning apparel and do not anoint yourself with oil, but act like a woman who's been mourning a long time for the dead. Go to the king and speak to him in this manner. So Joab put words in her mouth. So context-wise, Absalom, David's son, was upset that his sister Tamar was raped by his stepbrother. So David was supposed to, under the law and as king of the country and as final judge and jury, he was supposed to execute a rapist, and he didn't do that. So two years go by, and Absalom says, I'm taking this into my own hands, which he should not have done, because to be the avenger of blood, the family has to give you that title. He was never given the leave to go do it. He took it on himself. He was manipulative. He set up a grand ball and dinner, and he executed or killed his brother. He thinks he did it justly, so he doesn't run to a city of refuge because under the law, he's guilty of sin. So he's exiled right now. He's living in Geshur because he killed Amnon, his brother. And David, as king and judge of the land, should have dealt with Absalom as a killer of brothers, so he's a murderer. He should be executed for what he did. But David has this heart towards his kids where he doesn't discipline them. And now they're grown up, they're not kids anymore, and they're doing horrendous things, and he is unable as king to be a judge in those situations. Any parent gets this, right? He's, he's got a job as a king and a judge, but he's not able to do it for a couple of reasons, which we've already looked at. He's lost the moral high ground. How, how dare he call Absalom a murderer when he murdered Uriah? Like, so he's then having to judge people on things that he's done. So that's really hypocritical and hard to do. Plus, you love your kids, and you don't want to see them punished. So he's had the infant die from Bathsheba. He's had Amnon die. And now he's got this third son that becomes a problem. And of course, the judgment that he himself proclaimed is that whoever did this thing to Uriah should be punished fourfold. And it is working out that way, where we're now on number three, Absalom, and what's going on. What's amazing is when you go to Chronicles, there's barely a sentence on Absalom. Right? It's just, here's the kingship, here's what happened. And when you look at kind of the record of the kings in Chronicles, this isn't even tracked. But when you're in 2 Samuel, we get the full story of sin and everything that went wrong uh, as we're in more of the historical books. So 1 Samuel 16 all the way to 2 Samuel 11, everything David's done has been positive and godly and is an image even of Messiah. Right? This is what a godly king looks like. And then you get to 2 Samuel 11, you got everything going the opposite direction. He's completely backslidden, so he's not Messiah. But he still has, God's still using him to give us images of a lifestyle um, that's godly. And frankly, if David never screwed up, we wouldn't have an example of a sinner fixing his relationship with God in the Old Testament. 
So like, it, in some ways, this thing that the enemy meant for evil is getting used for a pretty amazing good. Like, we get to see what a broken person looks like when they need to fix themselves. So I love this. Heaven's perspective is just that there's grace and it gets forgotten. And by the time these stories make it into Chronicles, God's forgotten all about it. It's not important. What's important is David served the Lord. Um, so David gets, uh, gets to recover. Uh, Joab perceived... <laughs> Joab's an interesting character as a counterpoint to David. Like, he's done a couple things on his own that we've seen. He's kind of David's number two. He's running the, the armies. Later, he'll be one of the three major generals of David. Um, and he sees this estrangement as a bad thing. If Absalom's living in Geshur, an enemy country, this could be really bad that the crown prince of Israel is not living in Israel. And it could turn into a civil war. So I, just to look at that, he gets, uh, he gets the idea that David and Absalom need to work things out, or this is going to be a problem. Reality is it's going to be a problem anyways, because uh, Absalom's got just garbage in his heart. So he goes to Tekoa, that's south of Bethlehem a little bit. It's right in the middle of Israel. He likely thinks that it's something that he's doing to help the country, but he's perceiving it himself. Joab's not getting his instructions from God. And in the, again, it's important to see as we go through the next two, three chapters, all of this begins because Joab thinks he knows what he's doing. And he thinks he's doing the right thing. And I kind of feel for Joab because sometimes we're so convinced we're doing the right thing that we got it all figured out that we ignore that maybe God has a different kind of plan. At the end of the day, it would have been better if Absalom stayed in Gesher. And we're going to see that as we go through the two chapters tonight. He finds this wise woman. She has to be smart enough for him to put his words in her mouth, verse 3. But she's also got to be wise enough to speak on her feet and, re and play the game right, and do this thing with David, and she is, she's really shrewd, but they're going to mock or pretend or act to be like Nathan, because Nathan does this same thing with David, and David repents, so I think they're trying to get the same thing to happen, like what happened with Nathan, uh, and they play that game. Verse 4, when the woman of Tekoa spoke to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and prostra prostrated herself and said, help, O king, we know David has a spot, soft spot for the ladies, so I think that's part of why he picked a wise woman. That, that it's, some, it's hard to say no to a woman that's in pain and struggling. So she falls on her face, she puts herself in front of the king, and he's ready to help. I think at verse 4, he's ready to help her. Like, what can I do to help? Verse, then, then the king said to her, what troubles you? And she answered, indeed, I'm a widow, and my husband is dead. And now your maidservant had two sons, and the two fought with each other in the field, and there was one, no one to part them, but the one struck the other and killed them. This would be called manslaughter, right? Not, a, not like an intentional crime. And, and, so, and then in verse 7, And now the whole family is risen up against your maidservant, and they said, Deliver him who struck his brother, that we may execute him for the life of his brother whom he killed. And we will destroy the heir also. It's <laughs> an important little addition there. And they would, so they would extinguish my ember that is left and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the earth. So she's mixed two elements of the law, which is why you go to a judge or a king. The two elements of the law are one, you got a guy who killed another guy, that's manslaughter. He could run to a city of refuge, but he hasn't. He's run to his mama and he's hiding out with mama. And then the whole family, so they're talking there about the extended family. <clears throat> is saying that we got to find justice. We can't just have 
we can't have this guy alive because if you don't deal with the murder, then the blood of that murder is on the whole family. It's on the land itself. So that's going back to the Old Testament. But the second law is this heir issue. It's really important to the Jewish people that the allocation of the land stays with the family that it was given to in the first place. So to extinguish the ember is a very smart way to say it's not just about getting this murder resolved. They also want to destroy the heir in, in uh, verse 7. So by destroying the heir to the land, then that part of the, that land of the family goes to the rest of the family or whoever would inherit it outside of her thread. This would be really a bad thing in the Jewish eyes. So they're, they're not just trying to deal with a the murder, they're trying to take her land and the land that would go to her sons and then the, her husband's name would continue on in lineage. So by stopping this, she's brought those two things together. It might indicate that the people wanted David to address the Amnon issue and he didn't for those two years. But clearly her story is not quite the same as Absalom and Abnon. If it was totally the same, David would see what she's trying to do here. So she, she makes it enough difference. Again, she's a wise person. Um, and she brings this up. But it's essentially two sons. One kills the other. And now that person's being estranged. And she wants that person to be forgiven or brought back into the fold. Just like Joab wants to happen with Ammonon. And then the king said to the woman, Go to your house and I'll give orders concerning you. So <laughs> that's not enough. That's not what she came to the throne room to get out of David. But this is kind of a wise first approach. Go home. I'll think about it. I'll pray about it. I'll get you an answer. But she doesn't let that go. Verse 9, the woman of Tekoa said to the king, My lord, O king, let the iniquity be on me and on my father's house, and the king and his throne be guiltless. <laughs> so the king said, Whoever says anything to you, bring him to me, and he shall not touch you anymore. So now David's offered his own protection to her, right? So he adds his authority, but that's still not enough. She wants, that he, she wants to hear out of his mouth that he's making a God-given judgment on this situation because if he does that, she's got him, right? So she keeps pushing. Verse 11, then she says, please let the king remember the Lord your God and do not permit the avenger of blood to destroy anymore lest they, they destroy my son. And he said, as the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. So now he's extended not just his protection, but the Lord's protection on this son that has killed somebody. So he's, and this is the nature of the law. It's why when people read the law and try to say, look at how harsh the law is, the law was practiced by judges in the gate of all of these cities. There was a human being that would process the law and make a judgment call about how to apply it. So there were cut and dry cases, clearly, and in this case, David says, we're not going to bring that murder charge on here under the name of God. We're going to give some mercy in this situation. So now she's got him. Verse 12, therefore the woman said, please let your maidservant speak another word to the, my lord, the king. And he said, say on. So now that you've given that God-given protection to this murderous son of mine, let me say one more thing. And here it is. So the woman said, why then have you schemed such a thing against the people of God? For the king speaks this thing as one who is guilty. And in that, the king does not bring his banished one home again. Just like Nathan, she turns it right on him. But I hope you can hear the difference in tone between what Nathan did, which was to bring David closer to God, than what she's doing, which is to resolve an earthly issue on earth. Right? It's a very different kind of situation, but she's playing the same game, like, but you're the person that has estranged his own son and is doing this under the law. 
So again, David's in a situation where he's not ready to deal with his son, and it's causing further problems. So David, as father and king, is in this position to initiate reconciliation. Uh, as she's doing this thing, I think the right answer for David is, my household and how I deal with my son is actually none of your business, lady. Honestly, that would have been the right answer here. You know, this isn't for, thank you for the thought, not your job to interject yourself on this. So why is she coming in to manipulate him? Uh, but she adds to it, for surely, for we will surely die and become like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. Essentially, what you're doing right now, King David, is going to be a civil war, and all of your people are the ones that are going to suffer for this. We're the ones that are going to deal with this, which means there were rumblings that Absalom might be raising up an army, Right? There's a fear here. Yet God does not take away life, but he delivers, he de devises a means so that his banished ones are not expelled from him. Frankly, I love that verse. I mean, that's, an, that's a really a salvation kind of verse. It's almost prophetic. As bad as this all looks, we're all going to die, but God doesn't take away life. That's not what God's trying to do. And that what's going to happen here is that um, he devises a means so that his banished ones are not expelled from him. That's just a great salvation message. It looks bad for all of us, but God's not about a God of death. He's a God of life. So and that's all true. Verse 15. Now, therefore, I've come to speak of this thing to my, the, my Lord, the king, because the people have made me afraid. And your maidservant said, I will now speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his maidservant. For the king will hear and deliver his maidservant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son, together from the inheritance of God. Your maidservant said, the word of my Lord, the king, will now be comforting, for as the angel of God, so is my Lord, the king, in discerning good and evil, and may the Lord your God be with you. The, I think 15 through 17 are weird verses. She's keeping up the charade as though this was a real situation with her sons. Like maybe Joab brought her in because of the situation, but, and she put, uses the words of Joab, but in 15 through 17, she's kind of thanking him for his judgment. You know, so she put the accusation in the middle of a thank you sandwich. And so what should David do here? Should he hold Absalom accountable? Should he forgive him? Should he let it all go? Um, she keeps it really vague. She says this thing in verse 15. That could either be about her sons or it could be about Absalom. Just the way she's worded it is really clever. In verse 16, she keeps up the story. She thanks him for his judgment. And then she gives him a little flattery. Frankly, this is kind of, I think, when people are manipulating, this is a pretty good example of how people manipulate. You're such a nice person. You're so wonderful. Here's this thing I want from you. Oh, and you're an angel of God by giving me what I want, right? If you go with the manipulator, they'll treat you with flattery. If you say no to the manipulator, they may, you may get a very different reaction from them. But she gets what she wants. She calls him an angel of God. It's important to note this is the beginning of losing the kingdom of Israel for David. This is the start of how that happens. The writer has set this up with Bathsheba, Amnon, then the baby dies, then Amnon, and now David's going to lose his kingdom. And this next story, all of this is context for how David loses his kingdom, which says the right thing to do is probably to leave Absalom outside the country. He's a murderer. He's a devising, plotting, scheming murderer. It was probably better to leave him in Gesher. But he doesn't. Verse 18. Then the king answered and said to the woman, Please do not hide from me anything that I ask you. And the woman said, Please let my lord the king speak. 
So the king said, let me ask you something and don't hide from me what I'm going to ask you. I love how David does this, right? He sets it up and don't hide anything from me that I ask you. Let me say something now. She says, okay, what do you got? And he says, is the hand of Joab with you in all this? Is Joab talking right now? Which tells us that David and Joab had probably had some heated arguments. And it's not the first time those two have gotten into it. I love that David as a leader has people right next to him that disagree with him. What a strong leader that is. A lot of leaders in the flesh, they surround themselves with people that agree with them. But David doesn't do that. He has Joab there. And I actually respect that. Um, but is Joab, is this Joab talking right now? Joab in the next couple of verses we'll see is likely in the room standing off in the corner, laughing a little bit because she nails this thing. And the woman answered and said, As you live, my lord the king, no one can turn to the right hand or to the left from anything that my lord the king has spoken. You know what, King David? You're a really smart guy. You figured it out. I, nobody gets anything past you, David. For, for your servant Joab commanded me, and he put all these words in the mouth of your maidservant. So she tells the truth, which is smart when you're talking to the king. To bring about this change of affairs, your servant Joab has done this thing, but the Lord, my Lord, is wise according to the wisdom of the angel of God to know everything that's in the earth. But she doesn't pull back from what she said, what she asked, or the vows that David just made. So basically she says, yes, Joab did all of this. I love that. Um, verse 21, and the king said to Joab, he turns to him, all right. I've granted this thing. Go, for, go therefore and bring back the young man Absalom. He doesn't call him his son. Like this is kind of an Italian thing. Like you're no longer my son. Like he's this man Absalom. Bring him back. Let's talk to him. So then Joab fell to the ground on his face and bowed himself and thanked the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I've found favor in your sight, my lord, O king, and that the king has fulfilled the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, let him return to his own house, but do not let him see my face. So Absalom returned to his own house, but he did not see the king's face. He can come back to Jerusalem. I don't want to talk to him. He's a murderer. He killed David's other son, right? So I just, he's not going to deal with it. The hardest thing to do is to deal with the problems we have up front and as quickly as we can. In the flesh, it's so much easier to let stuff go. And we're estranged from people that we've had arguments with for years and years and years. And we just think, I can just be estranged forever from that person. And life is just easier. The hard thing to do is directly address the issue. Call Absalom in. Absalom, I have a problem with you. You killed my other son, <laughs> right? I'm going to forgive you of that, but I'm also not going to give you the kingship of this nation. That's never going to happen. And to just have that direct conversation, here's the sin, here's the consequence, now everything's on the table. There's no evidence that David ever does that with Absalom. He leaves the door open and he never deals with the guy. So the problem grows and it gets to be a cancer in the country as we're going to see in the next few verses. So to sum up, Joab sees that Absalom is basically the new high prince, right? He's the heir apparent and he wants that heir apparent to have a smooth transition. He doesn't want a civil war. So he plays this game, brings the woman in, gets David to vow that, you know, that he makes a judgment around this unique situation. Then they say that unique situation also applies to Absalom. And as a judge, he's going with precedent that he just set a few minutes before. So he sticks with the precedent. He brings Absalom back. 
Um, so others start to step in where David's showing a lack of leadership again. And his lack of leadership started with the Bathsheba thing, but it's going to continue to go through these situations. That sin paralyzes David's ability to act as a king. And it's the same with us. Our sin paralyzes our ability to act as children of God. And until we deal with the sin, we continue to be stuck in our faith. And that's what's happening with David until next chapter. Now in all Israel, there was no one who was praised as much as Absalom for his good looks. So he was hot. Ladies, he was something to look at. He was easy on the eyes, you might say. For, and this is how they describe that. For from sole to foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. He could be a swimsuit model. He was beautiful in all ways. And then I love this part. And when he cut the hair off his head, this is where we get a little ancient world, like the first verse there, you could see that. And when he cut the hair off his head, at the end of every year, he cut it because it was heavy on him. And when he cut it, he weighed the hair of his head at 200 shekels, according to the king's standard. Not only was he good looking, but his hair was heavy. To Absalom were born three sons, one daughter whose name was Tamar, which tells you what he thought of his sister. She was a woman of beautiful appearance. No spiritual qualities are mentioned about Absalom. Nothing about his heart, nothing about what kind of guy he was. The mention of the good looks is relevant in that the people liked what they saw, just like with Saul, but they're not looking at the heart, which is what they should be doing. And then he has heavy hair. The shekels there, if you put that into our weighting system, that's about five and a half pounds of hair. Once a year, five and a half pounds of hair. So that's not me. Um, and thick hair was seen as a sign of vibrancy. Like, right, you eat well, you have hair coming out your head, right? If you're too stressed, all your hair falls out, something like that. But it was this image or a sign of health. Um, and then the daughter uh, naming, naming his own daughter to honor his sister. It's kind of a neat image. And Absalom dwelt two years, two full years in Jerusalem. But he did not see the king's face. So back in verse 24, that was part of the condition here. Verse 29, therefore Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but he would not come to him. And when he sent again the second time, he would not come. So Absalom's kind of been brought back to Jerusalem, but he can't really connect with anybody in the court because they've all been told to give him some distance, right? So he's back and he's getting stonewalled. So then verse 30, Absalom isn't going to let that sit. People don't like to be excluded, right? And he said to his servants, see, Joab's field is near mine and he has barley there. Go in, set it on fire. <laughs> And Absalom's servants set the field on fire. This is a, he's not just manipulative. This is brutal because not only when you destroy a whole field, you're not just hurting Joab, you're hurting his whole family. This is food. Barley was what they ate. So Absalom doesn't know how to take a no answer. And then he does damage in response. This is a bitter hearted guy. So it feels like another kind of Saul king. Uh, he's a prodigal son. He comes back home, but he's not humble like the prodigal son. He's entitled, and it's a very different returning home, right? Oh, I'm going to go back to church, but the church owes me, right? It's not I'm going to go back to church because I'm broken and I need to get with God's people again. It's just this attitude he brings with him. David could have held Amnon accountable, and he doesn't do it. He could be holding Absalom accountable for the murder and now the fire of an entire crop, and he doesn't do anything about it. It's, it's like God is giving David a chance act as a king when he should be. And he just can't do it. So verse 31, then Joab arose 
and came to Absalom's house and he said to him, why have your servants set my field on fire? It's a good question. And Absalom answered Job, look, I sent to you saying, come here so that I may send you to the king and say, why, why have I come from Gesher? It would be better for me to be, here, be there still. Now, therefore, let me see the king's face. But if there's iniquity in me, let him execute me. No repentance. I think that's why the writer puts this in here. Absalom's like, if I'm guilty of something, then execute me. Kill me. I'd rather be dead than be estranged. And you know, Absalom's not entirely wrong, but we do get a sense of, in his heart, he thinks he was totally justified in assuming the avenger of blood and bringing that to his brother Amnon. So he's justified, no remorse. It's all about him. It's all this attitude. There's no forgiveness here. And there's nothing recorded about him having any kind of humility in this situation. The crop thing never gets dealt with. I think that shows a lot of restraint from Joab because Joab knows he's dealing with the guy who's kind of got some political power. So Joab went to the king and told him. And when he called for Absalom, he came to the king and he bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king. And then the king kissed Absalom. And you read that and you're like, oh, well, everything's better. It's all good. All of this sequence is how David loses the kingdom. I'm going to keep coming back to that point. Part of what he's doing here is he's got a bitter, manipulative person who comes in and clearly Absalom isn't bowing to David spiritually because he took it upon himself to be an avenger. He's killing the general's crops to get attention. So this seems to be, again, the histories don't give us a clear moral judgment, but as a reader, we're supposed to recognize that there's no humility here. There's a confirmation in words, but it never comes through in action. So, you know, you're my king and all that sort of thing. When the king kisses him, that would be a, an outward showing of we're all, everything's all right. So we're going to amend our relationship. But there's no relationship there. So David overlooks the wrong and never deals with it. This is a major problem right now. Moving past the sin but never acknowledging it and dealing with it and getting it into the open is not moving past the sin. It's what we call brushing things under the carpet. At some point, you got to deal with the stuff under the carpet, right? So those sins will come back to bite David. So what happens when you just ignore sin is we harden our hearts to it, and generally speaking, the sin's going to happen again, only worse. And that's exactly what's going to happen with Absalom. So perhaps David was waiting for an apology, some sort, like he's, he's hoping after two years, two years, He's hope, hoping Absalom would come in and just apologize. So when he sees him fall on the ground, he's taking that as an apology, but the words never come out. So God's forgiveness is not like this kind of imperfect kiss. God's forgiveness is perfect and total, and it comes after repentance. We ask for forgiveness, and we get it. Absalom never asks for forgiveness. So what he's getting right now from David is not really forgiveness. It's, I'm not going to deal with you. And that's not love. That's like letting your kid get away with stuff and never dealing with it. A good parent deals with it. So that's the key. There's a sin. You have a repenting sinner. There's lawful demands on that sin. And then you can bring in a propitiation of mercy to deal with the sin. See, we can have forgiveness in the system, but God never says sin is okay or I'm not going to deal with it, ever. So he does say, I'll pay the price for you and step in and I'll take the punishment on your behalf, but there's no discussion anywhere in the Bible of the punishment just not happening because that's not just, and a good, just God wouldn't just let it go. 
So there's, that's what we have here is it's not perfect. So believers can make this mistake. We can shower so much love on the sinner and never and skip the law entirely with that person. We're not loving that person. We're kind of doing the opposite. We're basically telling them that that stuff was okay, and it's not. So without repentance and forgiveness, we can expect that people will keep sinning, only they'll harden themselves or they'll excuse that sin for the rest of their life. Because it was okay in this instance, why is it not okay all the time? So only now that person's in the body of Christ doing that same sin, right? Instead of maybe they should have been left in Gesher until they got a repentant heart. So if you're going to be in the body of Christ, then let's deal with that. And let's, we're all working on our sin together. There's no shame in it. We're trying to move past it. So Absalom, as it turns out, should have been left in Gesher. So in verse 15, we're, we're seeing the manipulations of a, an usurper. And we're going to know that because of the very next things he does. So his, his show of fidelity to David is not authentic at all. So you go to chapter 15. And again, the transition there that says after this is a causal transition in the Hebrew. And all of this because David brought him back. So when it says after this, it's referring to that story we just got done with. After this, it happened that Absalom provided himself with chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. Why would you do this? We'll come to that. Now Absalom would rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. So it was whenever anyone who had a lawsuit came to the king for a decision that Absalom would call to him and say, what city are you from? And he would say, your servant is from such and such a tribe of Israel. And then Absalom would say to him, look, your case is good and right, but there's no deputy of the king to hear you. What's he doing there? He's stepping in. So don't forget this is because David didn't do what he was supposed to do. Now he's got somebody pretending to be judge who's not a judge. Absalom just assumes the position just like he assumed the position of avenger of blood. He's doing the same thing. The chariots and the horses are not practical. You don't, like today, we don't see people running around with chariots and horses unless there's a red carpet event in Hollywood. And then you get the limo and you get the entourage and it makes you look powerful to have other people serving you. So he hires people to run around and shout, Absalom is coming, Absalom is coming. So that everywhere in Jerusalem, you'd think this guy's a big deal. In fact, 50 people, even by today's standards, that's quite a crew of people. Like you come in, like when Michael Jackson came into town to do a concert, did he have 50 people, you know, all around him? You know, like that's a massive security force. It sounds cruel in a way that he would put these people in front of a chariot and have them run while he rode on his chariot. Like, you get the image of these 50 guys just being exhausted in the Middle Eastern heat. Um, but they would do it because they were getting paid. But the idea was, this guy must really be somebody. I remember going to conferences, and in the academic world, there was like an unspoken ranking between the different scholars. Like, oh, that's so-and-so, right? So if you, you know, see Jordan Peterson, oh, it's Jordan Peterson. But at the academic conferences, you get a lot of people who weren't famous, but they were trying to be famous. So what they would do is tell their grad students, everywhere I go, I want you to be following me. So you'd see these little herds following, like these herds of 30-year-olds following like a 60-year-old. And it was really like you start to recognize what's happening and you're like, ooh, that's just kind of creepy and weird. But they would be doing, and they'd walk like they were all busy. <laughs> and the grad students would be walking along with their notebooks and every word that poured from their mouth was this 
word that we all needed to hear. So you go to ACSD, and, which is about 30,000 professors from all over the country that would go to massive conference. And you'd see these little professors like putting on their pomp and their circumstance. That's what Absalom's doing. Look at me. I'm Absalom, and I have heavy hair, right? <laughs> Look at me, and behold, the heavy hair man. He rose early, don't, in verse 2, he rose early. Let's not undermine Absalom's work ethic. When in the Bible, when we see rise early, that means he's a hard worker. He was putting time into this. Oftentimes, the ungodly are amazingly hard worker. I have a friend that went and served on the president's scientific advisory committee, and she came back and she's saying, I've never seen people work harder than the people that work in D.C. They are up early in the morning and they're going 15 hours a day, 16 hours a day, because they're trying to change the world. And the motivation between sometimes is we, 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 we can't underestimate how hard the enemy is working. Absalom got up early to undermine the king and the people of God. And he worked extremely hard out. There's effort, there's intention, and he's putting in a discipline to it. Discipline in and of itself is not good or bad. Just like a lot of things we've studied, discipline is a tool. And people that are disciplined can accomplish great things, but it can be for either good or bad. And it goes both ways. It says he went to the way of the gate. What we should read there, the way to the gate, the gate is where the judge would sit for the city. So when David couldn't be there as king, he would assign a judge to sit there. Well, Absalom comes in with 50 people and says, that's my seat. Whoever was supposed to be sitting in that seat probably said, thanks, have a nice day. I'm not going to fight this battle. But he takes the seat. He presumes the seat of authority. So that role of judgment is to be the voice of God and the application of the law to real situations. That's what happened in the gate of the city. So he takes that position, takes that mouthpiece, and it's strategic because, and again, this is something to note when it comes to a manipulator or a divider. They put in lots of effort, like they're working the crowds. They put on a show. They like to be seen. And then he's careful about where he places himself so he can be seen as a person of authority, even though he's not. And it's success. it actually works. That's kind of the heartbreaking part about this. Not only does it work for Absalom, it works through all of human history. If you want to manipulate, undermine, and take over a place, this is how to do it. You get your instruction book right here in the Bible. But that is not how godly people should use the Bible. But it's all right here. And then he does this thing, and this is an interesting inclusion. It would be that whenever anybody had a lawsuit, so he goes after the people with issues. He goes after the people that are angry, upset, discontent. You see people come into the church and do this. They don't go, after, they don't go right up to the pastor and the pastor's wife and the elders and the long timers. They go after the edge people. You know, what, what's your problem with this place? What do you think? And could there be a better kind of thing to do here? And they start finding their buddies and they do it with a feigned concern. Absalom doesn't, I, th I think we should read this not as that he, when it says, what city are you from? Hey, where are you from? And they'd say, oh, I'm from such and such a city. Don't read that as Absalom being a nice guy and actually caring. That's not the context of this verse. He's buddying up to people and showing a concern for people because he wants something from those people. He wants to undermine David as the king. Look, your case is good. Hey, if it was up to me, like I'd be with you on this. They say whatever people want to hear to get them on their side because there's a bigger game at play here. It's really... He's tickling their ears or using flattery. He's putting in the effort. He's being where he can see. He's presuming the authority and position he doesn't have. He's buddying up with people. He's showing faint concern because he has all day to work on this and his enemy is trying to run a kingdom. 
Like David's at a huge disadvantage. When you get somebody with this heart and nobody's willing to stop them, one person can do great damage to large organizations. They can break a kingdom down. So look, your case is good. He gives him flattery. Then he says, oh, there's no deputy, the king on duty. See where he subverts the administration there? He's put himself in the position to block them from that service. And then he says, the service isn't there anyway. That's why I'm sitting here. So he's undermining David's system and the rule of law that David has. So people are starting to think, who's this king? And they're not doing much, right? Frankly, the Republicans do this to Democrats. Democrats do this to Republicans. They constantly undermine each other. It's the game. It's politics. There's nothing then that Absalom and David are, like leaving him in Israel is stirring up discontent of the worst kind of gossip you could have. David's incompetent. He's not doing his job. He's not stepping in his king where he should. And do note, David created this situation because he didn't do his job and he wasn't doing what he should. So he planted the seeds and then he fertilized it by not dealing with the issue right up the, in front. Verse 4, Moreover, Absalom would say, Oh, that I were made judge in the land, and everyone who has any suit or cause would come to me, and then I would give him justice. Okay, this is just politics, straight up. The world is destroyed. It's horrible. Everything's going to pot. We're all going to die unless I get elected. Put me in office. Folks, your life will be better. It, well, I can fix all that. I can fix the inflation. I can fix the immigration issues. I can fix the environmental destruction that's going. I can do it all. I know everything, even though Absalom hasn't done anything. But he's convincing people that he has. his politics. So it was whenever anyone came near to bow down to him that he would put out his hand and take him and kiss him. Oh, like kissing babies, right? I'm your guy. In this manner, Absalom acted towards all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel just like David stole Bathsheba from Uriah. Like father, like son. Only Absalom's sin is in an entire nation that this is going on. Look at how bad David is. Imagine how good it would be if I were the king. It starts with bitterness over Tamar. It grows into disrespect and defiance. And then it, it turns into this absolute devious undermining of David himself. And this is all about David and Absalom. Oh, that I. No real responsibility. It's funny how the divisional, pe divisional people never really put in the work, right? Sometimes things are hard to do. It's why they're not perfect, you know? And I, I always would think this way, like, if you're, if you're going to a church or you work for a company and it's not perfect, you know, maybe it's time for you to do a little extra, put in some work and help. But a lot of times people don't want to help. They just want to leave their job and go somewhere else, right? Or complain about their boss, but as believers, we need to be really careful about what's going on in our heart. Are we giving people? Are we serving? Are we helping? Because bosses can be tough to work with sometimes because they want things. And then they kiss them. He's rewarding their correct behavior with friendship, right? Frankly, that's just slick, right? It's just slick. It's what politicians do. If you do it my way, I'll be your buddy. If you don't do it my way, I will silence you forever, right? They're, I don't want to name names in politics. You can pick your politician and fill in the blank. In, in verse 6, it says, in this manner. Uh, the Hebrew there is dabah, dabah, dabah. Literally, it's translated word on word, Absalom acted. He turned his words into action. And the word on word is just this idea of this is just a 
a snapshot of how Absalom operated for two years. This was the kind of thing he did, right? So it wasn't just one instance. It was over and over and over again. Word on word, Absalom acted like this. This is what he did. It's an image of substance. There's no real plan. That was the other thing. Like, you find divisive people, and they're really good at complaining about what's not being done right. A really good question is, well, what would you do differently, and how would you fix it? And Absalom doesn't have an alternative plan other than put him in charge. But it's not like he has a better way to do it, which he could bring to David, and then David could start doing it. He's instead, he's actively trying to undermine David. It says he stole the hearts in that kind of way. David, we got to think of David as a political leader. Yeah, he screwed up with Bathsheba, but he, he built the nation. He built security for the nation. He was a war general. He was a caring and merciful judge. He was the best leader that God could offer this nation, but he's not good enough for the people in the nation. Think about that. A nation's only as good as the, the good people that they'll tolerate in leadership. And when a nation's heart strays from God, they're quick to dump godly leaders. And, and it's, an, it's an odd thing to me that the hearts of the nation turn against David when he's the finest leader that the world had produced up until this point in history. He's absolutely an outstanding leader. Now, it came to pass after 40 years. People struggle with the 40 years. Like, what do you mean 40 years? Uh, there's two ways that Bible scholars deal with this. One is that 40 over time, and Josephus, and there's a number of older versions, that that's actually four years. Two years of Absalom's trickery, and then two years of him, two, two years of estrangement in Jerusalem, and then two years of this behavior at the gate. The other way that that gets dealt with is people believe that after 40 years is Absalom was about 40 years old when that happened. So you can get caught up on that if you want to. We won't spend much time on it. That Absalom said to the king, please let me go to Hebron and pay the vow which I made to the Lord. For your servants took a vow while I dwelt at Geshur in Syria, saying, if the Lord indeed brings me back to Jerusalem, then I will serve the Lord. And the king said to them, go in peace. So he rose and he went to Hebron. So Again, we know about Absalom that he's trying to undermine David. So now he's putting on the guise of spirituality. Well, I need to leave Jerusalem for a while. And he's leaving Jerusalem to build his army and his force against David. And he wants to do that in secrecy. So he gives an alternative reason for leaving town. And he guises it with spirituality. And I'm going to do this. I'm going to go worship the Lord and do this thing. Hebron's uh, hometown kind of place for him. So at here at least Absalom knows that he's going to lie. In verse 10, he's got spies going out, right? So the, Absalom knows he's lying. And that means he's using God's name in vain. Literally, he's using God as his excuse to do this other thing. And it's shameful when we see this in the church. Well, I'm just, I'm just doing this out of concern. I'm just concerned that this and this is happening. And I just, I, the Lord's told me that I need to be doing this thing because we got to fix some of these things. And there's nothing unbiblical happening. It's just that person's discontent. And if you haven't seen that, just keep going to church for a while. It'll happen. It'll happen here eventually. We'll see that go on. It happens. Uh, he needs to operate away from David and without David knowing what he's doing so that he can create the division he's trying to create. This is how churches split. It happens. I, so I get a lot of these stories because growing up, my grandpa and grandma worked for the American Baptist Convention. And grandpa was a good, like he would help the church write their constitution, but he would go into a church when they were ready to split. And that was his job as a pastor. My dad moved 11 times when he was a kid. 
Some of us are familiar with that. And they would move from town to town, and Grandpa would come in and be the pastor for two to three years, deal with the division, rewrite their constitution, and help them hire their new pastor, and then the denomination would move him to another town, and he would start all over. I got to think that's the worst job ever. But my grandpa just felt called to it. He's like, what better job can I have than to bring peace in the kingdom of God? And, but grandma would tell grandma had quite another attitude. She's like, in every single town, grandpa, there was always one person that was the core of the church division. And grandpa just had to go in, identify that person, and send them packing. And then everything just healed itself. It was really easy. The hard part was like finding and identifying that person because they, they hide themselves as godly people. But really what's in their heart is their own will. It's not there, they're not there to serve. They're there to rule. And they don't understand they weren't put in the rulership place, so maybe they should serve. So David gets it. The reason I say David gets it is because he was writing songs, right? He's, so Psalm 41, verse 4, I said to the Lord, be merciful to me, heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. My enemies speak evil of me. When will he die and his name perish? And if he comes to see me and he speaks lies, his heart gathers iniquity to itself when he goes out. He tells it, all who hate me whisper together against me. Against me they devise my hurt. Here's David just trying to serve the Lord. He's doing the best job he can as king of Israel because God put him there. He was happy as a shepherd. And I, and I think what we're going to see from David, we need to understand what's in his heart because people really pick on him for just getting up and leaving. But I actually, I'm like, Good move, David. I think this was David repenting. He's healing. So he says to Absalom, go in peace. Literally his last words to his son before the rebellion. In the Hebrew, go in peace there is, you guys know this, shalom. Go in peace. That's the last thing he says to him. Just Absalom, just go in peace. But that's the opposite of what Absalom does. He doesn't go in peace. right? Or today we would say, don't go away mad, just go away. You, know, you don't have to be angry. You can just leave. If you don't like it, don't be here. Be somewhere you're going to be happy. Then Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say, Absalom reigns in Hebron. Remember David took over one city and then he gained strength over time. So this is kind of how they did it in the ancient world. So Absalom's trying to take Hebron as his first city. And with Absalom went 200 men. Uh, translators believe that means men of high position with their entire families. So hundreds of people came with Absalom to Hebron. And they invited from Jerusalem, and they went along innocently, and they didn't know anything. So uprisings tend to have people that are bitter on the inside. Like my grandpa, it was just one person at the middle of it. But then they're surrounded by innocent people that have been brought along, and it looks like there's a mob of people against God. And it's not a mob of people. It's one or two bitter people at the middle that have lied and and. and moved other people along with them. Generally nice people that aren't trying to do harm to David at all. But it looks like it's a thing. And if he can have it look like there's a rebellion, then people that are bitter will gather to the rebellion and the numbers will grow. So verse 12, then Absalom sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite, and David's counselor from his city of Gilo, while he offered sacrifices. And the conspiracy grew strong for the people with Absalom continually increased in number. He hired runners in verse 1. He gathers his own court. Uh, verse 8, these are far from, this is far from serving the Lord as he said he was going to do. So he's not doing what he told David he would do at all. These people, a lot of people are just there like a herd, right? He's herding and gathering people, and they're innocent. 
And that I think the writer adds this because the writer wants us to see Absalom as extremely manipulative, right? So he's pointing out that these people weren't with Absalom at the beginning. And, and that said, these 200 people are responsible for where they're at. I think this is a big deal. Each of us are individually responsible for who we show ourselves to be with and who we show ourselves to be following. We need to do some homework on the people we follow. And that's a tough thing to do, especially in the digital age when we follow people that are on the internet sometimes. But we're responsible. Like these people are partially responsible for the fall of David because of where they put their views and their likes. And I think that's an interesting to think of, thing to think about in the digital age. Ahithophel, um, the, the Ahithophel thing is interesting. <laughs> His defect as one of David's closest counselors is a huge blow to David's kingdom. So he lost one of his key people. It's like one of the elders breaking off from a church and taking a bunch of people with them, right? When you see these kinds of situations where God's people don't get along, that kind of leadership being a betrayer is tough. Uh, David writes in Psalm 41, verse 9, Even my own familiar friend who I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Why would he write that? Because it's the worst kind of betrayal when a friend betrays you. It's the worst. You know, having your own son betray you is pretty bad. Having a good friend betray you, that, I, I think that's even worse. The son doesn't have a choice but to be in your household. But a good friend does have that choice, you know? So it's the same uh, verb that's used in John 13 to point to Judas's betrayal. 2 Samuel 23, 34, Eliam, the son of Ahithophel the Gilanite. That's Ahithophel's son. Then if you go to 2 Samuel eleven three. The daughter of Eliam is Bathsheba. Why is Ahithophel such a loss? Why would Ahithophel break off from David? Because two years ago, his granddaughter was stolen from her husband and taken by the king, and Ahithophel would have been privy to all of that. So Ahithophel, I think, is as Bathsheba's grandfather was probably a really wise and smart guy and played it smart, but deep down, he's probably really upset about what happened to his granddaughter. I don't know if something happened to Janiel, if Dwayne would be upset, but I think he'd be out for blood. So Ahithophel watched what happened to his beautiful granddaughter and how this was done by the king, and I'm thinking Ahithophel was done with David, and that's part of the consequence of sin. It, it, sin doesn't just affect us. It affects everybody around us and the trust we have with people. So why is Ahithophel doing this? He's got very good motive to turn on David. As with Amnon, the series of events that we're getting in these chapters are all fed by David's sin. And all of these consequences come because of that. David's passiveness leads to a sinful situation where he gives in to sin and the effects keep coming. So the conspiracy grows strong. People follow crowds. They want to be on the winning side. If you think your guy's about to lose de-hitch your wagon and get away from them. The problem with that is sometimes, especially when you're looking at you know, what we're seeing in politics and culture today, we're seeing a lot of innocent people go down because evil people want them out of the public eye. And, it, and, and people just detach and suddenly you, it, we're calling it cancel culture. We're seeing people get canceled that are good godly people sometimes because they stand up for what's true and right and the mob goes after them, and the rest of the good people of the world just back off and let them go down. So the, the way to respond to that is to side with that person and go down with them. You know, if you want to send down half the country, then you, you, now we know where the lines are. 
But when, you, when they let people go down on their own, it's trouble. So the, the conspiracy grew strong. It gets this momentum to it that seems unstoppable. Lord, how they've increased who trouble me. Psalm 3, verse 1. Many are they who rise up against me. Many are they who say of me, there is no help for him from God. He's a sinner. God's done with this guy. And they don't stand with David. So they take the next step. Verse 13. Now a messenger came to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. So David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, arise and let us flee or we shall not escape from Absalom. Make haste to depart lest he overtake us suddenly and bring disaster upon us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. I think that's what got David to move. He actually still cares more about the people. Even if they're turning on him, he cares more about the people than he cares about himself. If he stays in Jerusalem, you got a civil war and people are going to die. If he leaves, there won't be bloodshed. So he leaves. And I honestly think this is where you start to see David. His real repentance is he abused the power of the kingship. And it is a logical thing for him to think, maybe God has lifted his hand for me. As all these people go with Absalom, isn't that kind of what happened with Saul and David? So maybe David's thinking in the same way God lifted his hand from Saul, maybe my sin has made it so God's lifting his hand from me. And I, only unlike Saul, I'm not going to fight it. I'm not going to do that. It just hurts everybody. I'm going to just walk out, and I didn't need the kingship to start. I don't need to hold on to it, and I'm not going to fight for it. If God wants me in the kingship, he'll keep me in the kingship. If God is lifting his hand and I need to walk away, he's going to walk away. So verse 15, And the king's servant said to the king, huh. I think it's interesting that the writer... So David says, like, pick up on this. The hearts of the men are with Absalom. So David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee. We should not escape Absalom. Make haste to depart, lest he overtake us and bring strong disaster. He's talking about David, but the writer keeps calling the king David, not Absalom. So the writer is like who the true king is. Here's another thing to note. In verse 15 through 18, the word the king gets used exactly seven times. The king, the king, the king, the king. The writer wants us to know David is still the king. He's never lost the kingship. God never took it away from him. So even though he's walking away, he retains the kingship. The throne doesn't make the king. God makes the king, and the throne's irrelevant. So there's this, the king, the king, the king. And the king's servants said to the king, we are your servants, do, ready to do whatever my lord the king commands. Then the king went out with all his household after him, but the king left 10 women concubines to keep the house. And the king went out with all the people after him and stopped at the outskirts. And then all his servants passed before him and all the Cherethites and the Pelethites and the Gittites and 600 men who had followed him from Gath passed before the king. One last time just to get that point across, the king. Some people paint David as clueless here. I, I, I don't know if I read it that way. I don't think David's clueless at all. He knows what Absalom's all about. He knows what he's doing. He recognizes ruthless. He grew up with Saul. He knows what ruthless looks like. It says, we shall not escape. That seems like a general assessment of the situation. David fully expects the worst from Absalom. I don't, most parents look at their kids and see the best in them. And if the best of Absalom is the capacity to slaughter an entire household, that says a lot about Absalom when his own dad thinks that of him. It says, strike the city. So he's leaving. That means to pick up or strike camp. And David is going to stop the battle. He's going to make it so there's no blood. The best way to not fight against the enemy is to not fight against the enemy. 
Well, it's your you can have it. I'll go dig a new well, just like Isaac. So he just lets him have Jerusalem, and the, the city's not as important as God's will. So his authority then is rooted in this aspect of, you know, Absalom's trying to take power. David actually, I think, has power. And he doesn't have to take it. He's, he's Part of having power is not having to cling to it. If you're clinging to it that desperately, you didn't have it in the first place. So the king here gets used in those seven times. The writer's really trying to let us know at least what angle we should take on who's who here. So the other interesting part are the people that follow him. This is just great. As he leaves, David doesn't leave alone. Sometimes we think when the enemy's pressing that we're all alone. We're not alone. The people that love David are still with him. The Cherethites and the Pelethites, we know them because they were with him in the caves. They knew David before he was the king. And they loved him before he was the king. Before things were big and awesome and special and shiny, the Cherethites and the Pelethites are like, we'll serve you till we die. Ironically, those are Philistine tribes. That like, your way of Yahweh is better than the Canaanite way or the Philistine way of these pagan gods. We will serve Yahweh and we will serve you because you're the agent of Yahweh on this earth. There's a loyalty there because they don't care about the kingship. I love the Cherethites and Pelethites. I want to hang with them at the wedding feast of the Lamb in heaven. Like, I know I want to hang out with bears. You, know, you all know that. But when we go for dinner time, I want to sit with the Pelethites. And then the next night, I want to sit with the Cherethites. These are amazing human beings who stick with David even when there's no advantage to sticking with David. It, it, in all appearances, the kingdom is gone and David's about to go live in caves again. And they're going to stick with that guy no matter what because they know David's a good man and good at heart. They've forgiven him, and God's forgiven him. And the people of God generally can understand what that looks like. So these are the people ready to follow, even when the king is despised. It's interesting when Jesus is resurrected, the first people to follow Jesus were a whole bunch of Gentiles, right? And so we see this image of, of the fallen king. It looks like he's done yet these people continue to follow him, this small group of ragtag people. And then it adds this other group, the Gittites. Um, we'll get to the Gittites. So these are people that have been adopted into Israel, and they're kind of a bodyguard, and they're from the area of Gath, and they follow him, not because of who he was or what position he had, but because of who he is and what kind of heart he has. I just love this. So he's ousted from Nathan. So you got these, these, this Gittite group following him. We don't really know who those people are. It's kind of a first mention. So the Cherethites and Pelethites have been with him from the beginning. And then you got this group of Gittites that are kind of new, which in verse 19 will come back to them because the author explains who they are in just a couple verses. He leaves 10 women behind. Essentially, if you leave one of these big, huge households, it's like leaving a mansion. And if you just leave the mansion, all the spiders come in and it ruins the place. So to leave behind a group of 10 concubines, these would have been like the household, the housekeepers. So they weren't necessarily David's wives. So there's a problem because they're not David's wives, but he's legally obligated to take care of them. He feeds them, he cares them, they're in his household. And a lot of times concubines are also used for sexual pleasure. But David leaves behind the concubines and takes his legal wives with him, right? So he's parting ways with some of the things he had problems with. And at the same time, he's leaving these people behind to care for the house. That'll be important next chapter. So just keep a pin in that for now. But he leaves behind some of these people that he was responsible for. Likely, David's been getting ready for this moment 
since Nathan told him that he had sinned and there would be consequences. So I think that David, like Nathan never tells him Absalom's going to take your kingdom, but he does say the sword won't depart from your house. So I think that that moment of a couple years ago with Nathan, David's been thinking about this for a long time. So when he sees the rebellion rise, he sees his son coming back with a group of people, they're marching on Jerusalem, he's just like, okay, I knew this was coming a long time ago, looks like God's taken the kingship from me. For all appearances, it's time for me to leave, and he does. And it's the right thing to do, right? There is no major bloodshed in, in, in Jerusalem, but there is some evil that happens. So I think it's interesting. One question is, why do these people follow David? He's sinned, he's wrong. Yes, he's repented, but he's still fallen and he doesn't have the moral high ground and he's not taking care of these sons that have been causing so many problems. Why do they still follow David? I think this is why. This is the heart of David and I'm going to read from Psalm 62. Frankly, you can just pick your psalms. Psalm 3, Psalm 41, Psalm 55, Psalm 61, Psalm 62. David starts writing music again. The world's fallen apart and David's falling back into God's arms because that's where his security and shelter is. I'm going to read this passage from Psalm 62 because I think it shows us the heart of David. We think David's down right now, like this is the worst point in his life, but his writings don't seem to appear that way. So Psalm 62 is likely written as he's escaping Absalom. They only consult to cast him down from his high position. They delight in lies. They bless with their mouth, but they curse inwardly. Selah. My soul waits silently for God alone, for my expectation is from him. He only is my rock and salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. As he's walking away from Jerusalem, right? I shall not be moved. So physically he can be moved, but spiritually he's in the right spot here. In God, my salvation and my glory, the rock of my strength, my refuge is in God. I trust in him at all times. You people pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. I would follow this guy, wouldn't you? Do not trust in oppression, nor vanity, hope in robbery. If riches increase, don't set your heart on them. God has spoken once, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God. Also to you, O Lord, belongs mercy, for you render to each one according to his work. And David's like, my works have been pretty bad, so I'm getting rendered what I deserve. He's not bitter against God, he's quite the opposite. I don't know if you're hearing that kind of psalm, but... He's, he's in this place where I think he's getting closer. This is great drama. This is a great movie. Like this is a plot line of there's betrayal and all this sort of thing. And you got David just being like, God's my refuge. I'm good. I'm good come bad. I'm, you know, like Paul, I'm content with bad. I'm content with good, sickness, health, whatever God gives me, I'm going to keep before my God. And then it says this thing where they all passed before the king. I think this is like the end of act two for David. Right? Act one is, woo, everything's good. Act two, everything falls apart. And at the end of act two, David's just standing there as all these loyal people walk past him. He's got this last glimpse at the city of Jerusalem as he says farewell. He can hear the crowds going. The Gittites come past him. And he's looking at the Gittites going, wait, who are you people? Like, he doesn't know them because they just showed up. Right? These are great. Verse 19. Then the king said to said to. Ittai the Gittite, more than just the awesome name in the Bible, Ittai the Gittite, why are you going with us? Like, what are you doing? Like, he gets the Pelethites and Cherethites, they're close, but return and remain with the king. So David calls Absalom the king, he's given it up. 
for you're a foreigner and also an exile from your own place. In fact, you came only yesterday. Should I make you wander up and down with us today? Since I go, I don't know where. And you take your brethren back, mercy and truth be with you. Hey, Gittites, God bless you. I'm running to the hills and I'm going to go hang out in the wilderness. We're all going to be eating honey and locust in the hills. You don't want to come on this journey. Like you're, you're abandoning your pagan gods to come be in Jerusalem and follow Yahweh. I just stay near the temple. What are you doing on this trip? Right? This is so awesome. Right? And then they, the idea that they just came yesterday, Ittai is an interesting character. Later on, Ittai becomes a side-by-side general with Joab. Right? He becomes one. David knows who his loyal servants are. It's the people that are there when it's tough to be there. They're the people that are there on moving day. I'm sorry. That's <laughs> it's just, I keep saying that. So the king, it says, my lord, the king. Ittai knows exactly who the king is. Ittai uses that language, and I think it's great. Like, pay attention to how Ittai responds here. But Ittai answered the king and said, as the Lord lives and as my lord, the king lives, surely in whatever place my lord, the king shall be, whether in life or death, even there also your servant would be. We get this beautiful image of what we should be like with Jesus Christ. Man, I'll go wherever you want me to go, Jesus. I get that you died on a cross. I'm there with you. And Jesus says, pick up your cross daily and follow me. And Ittai the Gittite gives us this image of following the king no matter what. And look at how he does it. He does it with clarity. He does it with full knowledge of who the Lord is. As Yahweh lives and as my Lord the king lives. Like he gets that there's Yahweh and there's David. And he's willing to follow the king. And whatever that place will be. Like the kings aren't made by their trappings. They're made by who they serve. And he knows if you serve Yahweh, that's why I just yesterday showed up in Jerusalem. I came to serve Yahweh. And you're with Yahweh, so I serve you. I don't need to be in a city. I don't need a fancy palace. So David said to Ittai the Gittite, go and cross over. Like, you're welcome to come if you want to. I think this is like the image of the centurion that comes to Jesus. And he's like, my girl is sick. And Jesus is like, based on your faith, she'll be healed. And that very hour she was healed. And the centurion, and he's like, surely this display of faith is greater than I've seen. Like, this is the kind of faith you have. Ittai the Gittite, he's that kind of guy. I don't need to be convinced. I'm here to follow you. So David said to Ittai the Gittite, go and cross over. Then Ittai the Gittite and all his men and all the little ones who were with them were crossed over. He's bringing an entire little village with him, right? These big households of the ancient world were huge. And all the country wept with a loud voice and all the people crossed over. And the king himself also crossed over. <laughs> this is the fun part. All this crossing over, you'd think they're crossing the Jordan but they're crossing the Brook Kidron. This is, by the way, about a 10-minute walk downhill from Jerusalem. Like, we're not very far into the journey yet. Like, we're just outside the gates. The Brook Kidron sits between the Mount of Olives and the Mount Zion. You go down, there's Kidron. You go back up, there's the Mount of Olives. So literally, they're like, you know, 100 yards outside the city. So they crossed the Brook Kidron, and all the people crossed over towards the way of the wilderness. So they're heading out. True loyalty is shown in danger and at personal loss of safety and loss of profit. That's when loyalty shows up. Loyalty isn't when everything's good. Loyalty is when things go to crap. And these people are like, I'm with you no matter what. And it doesn't matter what the place looks like. He didn't follow prosperity. He didn't follow networking. He didn't follow good worship teams. 
He didn't, he didn't follow the selfish gains of being in a, in a big place with fancy images. He came for Yahweh, and he's going to be wherever Yahweh is. Amen? Yeah. I don't care where it is or what it looks like. I like my overheated coffee shop. If we're teaching the Bible, then we're going to be with Yahweh, and we're going to learn the Bible together. And I, and I know that's a tough comparison, but I just I love this image of loyalty and this Ittai the Gittite who literally shows up the day before all this stuff hits the fan and he's like, I don't care. I'm here because David's here and I'm just going to be doing this. Um, I think we should be like this as new believers and we should say things like this. As Jesus lives, our place is with Jesus. Live or die, good or bad. I'm going to be with Jesus because that's better than anything the world has to offer. And if you're not utterly convinced of that, go live for the world some more and see if it produces what you think it will. So that point of believers getting that point where I've, I've seen it, I've tried it, or maybe you're smart and you don't touch the stove, but you believe it's hot, and you just say, I'm going to follow Jesus no matter what. I'm not, and I'm, I'm going to boldly proclaim myself aligning with Jesus, even at personal loss, even when it might hurt my relationships at work. I'm going to declare who I am no matter what. Deal with it. Right? And that force of confidence is actually a culture changer. You become the changer of culture because you're not receiving it all the time. Sometimes you contribute to it. And Ittai the Gittite, man, he doesn't care. He's taking his whole family and crossing the Kidron, which is a good jump for Michael. Right? It's not, it depends on you know, how much water is going through there. There was also Zadok, and all the Levites came with him. Well, that's interesting. The entire, like, a whole wing of the Levites under Zadok, come with David, bearing the Ark of the Covenant of God. So this is a pretty sizable group that had the authority of taking the Ark out of the tabernacle and following there. And nobody's getting fried, so they're properly carrying the Ark, which they learned when they brought the Ark into there. So these are priests that are following the Word of God and doing it to the letter. They're going with David, not Absalom. They, they're smart enough to see what kind of scumbag this is. And they set down the ark of God, and Abiathar went up until all the people had finished crossing over from the city. Then the king said to Zadok, carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he'll bring me back and show me both it and his dwelling place. This is where I get the idea that David knew exactly what was going on, and David's not clinging to the kingship. If God wants me in the kingship, I'll be in the kingship. If not, the ark needs to stay with the tabernacle and God's people. David, as a king, and he's still being called the king by the author, he's still thinking more of the people than he is about himself. This is good leadership. It's not about David. It, he doesn't need the ark with him. The ark needs to be with God's people, and God's people are in Jerusalem. So he sends the ark back. But if he, God says thus, verse 26, I have no delight in you, here I am, then let him do to me what seems good. I might be going to my death and I'm okay with that because I'm not going to hurt God's people by fighting with my son over the kingship. God's honestly raising Absalom up. There's nothing I can do to stop it. Think of this compared to Saul. Saul fought tooth and nail to hold on to the kingship and he, and he almost destroyed the nation. Philistines had nearly taken them out when David came in. So he's just, I'm going to let it go. In verse 27, the king also said to Zadok the priest, are you not a seer? Aren't you a prophet? Return to the city in peace and your two sons with you, Amahaz, your son, and Jonathan, the son of Abiathar. See, I will wait in the plains of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. Therefore, Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem and they remained there. All spiritual leadership is looking like it was loyal to David and then he sends them back. I love his contrite spirit. I love how he's just 
he's not going to take, he understands that God's not in the box, right? God's going to do what God's going to do. Where the ark is isn't going to affect this situation. So he tells him to carry the ark back. He does. If we're willing to submit to God, are we willing to sacrifice the things we like about God too? If we let our will go and follow God, that might mean there's some things we have to put up with. And for David to not be close to the tabernacle, that's got to hurt, right? If this is God's will that I'm out here as a missionary and not with my people, that's a sacrifice that people make because it's nice to be with God's people every week. So when we see people that are willing to do this and make this sacrifice, David has... David is in love with God in a sense that he's willing to do anything and even wants to take care of God, the image of God on this earth. And pride doesn't allow him to get in the way of destroying that. He doesn't just... Remember Saul sent the ark out into battle and had his sons go do it and they lost the ark to the Philistines. David's doing quite the opposite. Keep the ark safe. It doesn't need to be out in the wilderness. So it's not up to David to move God. It's up to God to move David. And he's just got the right attitude. And he says, until words comes to you. I think this is interesting. David is staying tuned in. It looks like he's just throwing up his hands and walking away. But these verses show a kind of a different angle that he's actually leaving the priest there as a kind of information network. And this word spy doesn't get used, but it's like, when you tell me to come back, I'll, I'll, I'll come back anytime you want me to. But I'm not going to do it against the will of the people. So this is an image of a po politic or a government that looks very different than the ancient world, where kings get power and keep people power by force. David's likely the first world leader ever to let go of power. And it's where the founding fathers of America got the idea that we could have an election and whoever was in charge would let go. And George Washington modeled it. They wanted to keep George Washington as a king. And George Washington said, I'm not going to be your king. I'm not going to do that. In fact, that's not good for the nation. What's good for the nation is you rule for a season and then you let go of it. And David's the first person to model that. Just let go. So it says he went up by in verse 30. And notice what path he's taking. So David went up by the ascent of the Mount of Olives. And he wept as he went up, as he covered his head and went barefoot. And all the people were with him, covered their heads and went up, weeping as they went. This is a time of mourning. But he's going up the Mount of Olives. There's a garden that's put on top of there called Gethsemane, which is the pressing of olives, the olive press. Or if you think of olive oil as an image of the Holy Spirit used in the tabernacle, this is where the Spirit is pressed. This is the dark times. This is where Jesus prayed before God to take the cup of wrath away from him. It's the same path Jesus took. David's just going the opposite direction. The head covering is a sign of mourning. The barefoot feet is a sign of humility and penance. Weeping as they go up is a weeping over the evil that's happening in their country. God's people should be distressed when we see evil winning. That's different than going in with swords and fighting it, but it is horrible to see when evil wins. And God's people here are modeling that too. To repent from sin isn't to get away with it, but fully accept the wrongness and the regrettableness of it and to mourn that it ever happened in the first place. God's people knowing their own sin, we have to walk through our entire Christian lives knowing what we did is A, forgiven because we've repented of it, but we always have the memory of it. And that should keep us humble. We should regret those things that happened. Beware at a Christian church where somebody gets up on a stage and brags about all the bad things they did before they were saved. That's not a good thing to brag about. 
We should be mourning about the things we did that parted us or distanced us from God. God takes away power from David. I think that's an interesting step in David's healing and in his journey. The very things that caused the sin in David's life, God is methodically taking away from David and the kingship itself is one of the things that he needs a break from. I think it's really neat when you see pastors that are recognizing that their heart's going the wrong way and they actually step themselves down from ministry. That doesn't mean they're leaving God's service forever, but it is saying I need to take a break because I need to step down because I can see that my heart's not doing it out of the Holy Spirit anymore. And it's rare when you see that. It never makes the news, but it's just this humble thing of somebody saying, I'm just going to serve. I'm going to stack chairs for a while and get back to that kind of ministry. Or I'm going to make apple pies for the congregation and just give with a giving heart again um, because I got to do a different kind of thing. And David's stepping down from ministry and God's taken that away through what's going on. Here's the end result of this is that what's happening right now actually works. It does restore David to a throne and, it re and he retains his moral authority. So the contrite heart, the letting go of ministry, the letting go of the kingship, all of this actually has the right result in David's heart. He doesn't ever do the sin again. And isn't that the end result? So sometimes when we're recovering or repenting, there's some pain there, there's some hurt, but the end result is no more sin. So that's a good thing. So he turns the, he does one other thing as he's leaving. Then someone told David, verse 31, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, I pray, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. <laughs> this isn't a guy that's walking away from the kingdom. He's walking away from the kingship. But he's still praying for the kingdom. So another thing he does, not only does he leave an information connection between Jerusalem, but he's actively praying against the evil people. Stop these people from doing what they're doing. And, and I think, to be frank, he's enjoyed the wisdom of Ahithophel for decades. He knows Ahithophel's a smart guy. So the fact that he's, he doesn't pray that Absalom won't listen to him. Absalom's a smart guy too. He's going to listen to Ahithophel. But he prays that the counsel of Ahithophel will be turned into foolishness because the normal state of Ahithophel is he's a wise, smart guy. David knows the intelligence of his enemy. He gives credit to it. And even though this is betrayal and it hurts in a big way, he's still actively praying for those people that he was serving with and for before. Verse 32, now it happened when David had come to the top of the mountain where he worshiped God. This is the exact spot Jesus went to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. Really cool history. That's a neat piece of ground. And you can still walk there today. There's olive trees still alive that were alive back when Jesus was alive. The garden is still there. You can walk there. You can pray there. This is where David went. And instead of mourning and crying, he worships God. Worship is an act of sacrifice or giving to God what is due God. It is not singing songs with electric guitars. That's a kind of worship. What David does here, because there's no electricity in the ancient world, what David does here is he gives God what, what is due God, and that is his worship and his love. Job 1.20, then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and he worshiped. Job is another example of guy where everything's taken away from him, and the result of a righteous person is when everything's taken away, I'm going to turn to God and worship him, because now I've got time. Right? If you lose your job, you have more time to study the Bible on your hand, to worship and give God his due. 
So when you lose everything, you have more accessibility to just be between you and God. Both Job and Job and David take advantage of the situation of losing everything, and they do the right thing with it. David's heart is healing. This is true worship. True worship gets shown in danger and loss, not safety and profit. Like this is where David's heart of worship is coming there. A lot of times we retract when things go bad in our life. We, have, we think we have less to give to God. And I think God's just making room for you to give more when those things happen. You want to stop the enemy from attacking to you? Start writing songs <laughs> like David did. Start writing prayers like David did. Start taking that time to worship. I'm going to read Psalm 51, a little segment from there. Again, to get inside David's heart right now. He stopped and he worshiped on the top of the Mount of Olives. And this is the kind of thing he was saying. Psalm 51, verse 4. Against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that's David talking to God, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in my sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me know to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness, that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, blot out all my iniquities, and create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. There's an old campfire song. You ever heard that one? Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. That was written while David was at the lowest point in his life where he screwed up and he knew it and he just turned to God and said, I'm just going to give it all to you. I got nothing left to give. You can have what's left, Lord, and do whatever you want with it. So this makes the Mount of Olives an amazing historical site and an absolutely stunning spite. And then you get the, this is the picture. What he's looking at on the hill is he's looking at the, the, where the tabernacle would be on the Mount Zion. So it's, whenever you see pictures of Jerusalem online, it's from the Mount of Olives. They're taking those photos where you see the Alaska Mosque and the city just laid out in front of you. That's the view he has when he's praying and worshiping God. It's the same place that David surrenders his will to God. It's the same place that Jesus says, take this cup, but if not, your will be done, not mine. It's the same place Jesus surrenders his will to his Father in heaven. It's an amazing place on earth. God responds immediately to this prayer. Verse, and, well, uh, we still in verse 32. There was Hushai the archite coming to meet him with his robe torn in the dust. So he stops on the hill. Everybody walks past him. Okay, everybody's there. I'm just going to worship and pray. And then this old codger comes up, and he's slower than the rest of the group. And you can hear, just hear this as the little staff is coming up the hill. And you got Hushai coming up to meet him with his robe torn, his dust on his head. He's mourning with everybody else, but he's just, he's the straggler in the group. He's taking more time. David's praying, oh Lord, anything you want. And here comes Hushai walking up the path, the archite. David said to him, if you go with me, then you're going to become a burden to me. What are you doing here? You can't keep up. We're going in the wilderness. Note that this is linked to the news of Ahithophel. Ahithophel's counseling him. And here's one of his other counselors coming up the road. So where he had one betrayer, he has another one that's loyal. And he's praying, confound 
somebody stop the wisdom of Ahithophel, the worldly wisdom, from helping Absalom. Like, please, Lord, you got to do something about Ahithophel. And here comes this other old codger that's also a really wise guy. And look at what David does with him. If you return to the city and say to Absalom, I'll be your servant, O king, as I was your father's servant previously. This was one of David's counselors. So I will now be your servant. Then you may defeat the counsel of Ahithophel for me. David not only prays, but he acts on the prayers when God gives him. So I think sometimes God answers our prayers and we don't even notice it. But David sees God's answer walking up the road with his little cane, you know, and he's like, you can't keep up with me and I could really use your help back in the city because you're, 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 you're as crafty a wise person as Ahithophel and you two will counter each other out. Every time Ahithophel gives good advice, you give bad advice. And that's the game. We're going we're gonna to confound. So whatever Absalom's got to do, he's not going to do it with clear counsel from Ahithophel. Verse 35, and you do not have Zadok and Abiar the priests with you there. Do you not have Zadok and Abiar? Hey, I've left the priests back there. You got friends. And, and, and I just think this is wonderful. Therefore, it will be that whatever you hear from the king's house, you shall tell to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Indeed, they have there with them their two sons, Emiaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them you shall send me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, went into the city, and Absalom came into Jerusalem. Absalom takes over the city. That's kind of where we end the chapter tonight. David is then not passively leaving the city. He's leaving the city, but he's setting up information networks. He's got people at the temple. He's got Hushai at the king's court or council. He's going to know everything that's happening in the city. And if God wants him back, he's going to know when to come. So he's not abandoning this service to the kingdom. But if kingship is about service, if leadership's about service, He's going to continue to serve. He's just going to do it in a different way. And he's doing everything there. So David puts in place the information. He resigns himself to God, verse 25 and verse 26, and is active on the behalf of God's people. He's not going to just abandon them. He's going to keep praying for them. He's going to continue to do what God's gifted him with, which is his music ministry. That was where David started. The first way that David served the throne was to play music for Saul. And that's exactly what he returns to. He's going to go back to making music. So we get this flourishing of songs in the Psalms where there's these hardships and David's adjusting his attitude in every one of those Psalms. So again, great study this week is to go back to those Psalms I mentioned. I don't think David's a fatalist and I don't think he's passive. I think he's just saying if God doesn't want me in the kingship, I don't need the kingship. What I need is God. And I'll take God before I take leadership. I don't need to be in that spot. David Rosales just got done teaching. It was really wonderful. He went to his church. He's teaching in Revelation. And he's talking about the church of Sardis, right? And he goes to the ch- and he says, you know what? The problem with the church of Sardis is they were getting great theology. Like the doctrine was fine. But Jesus calls them out because they're dead on the inside. They aren't alive. So they're hearing the right theology, but they're not living it. And as a pastor, this is just he just says, you know what? I'm really scared for our church because I think we're like this. I think we got a lot of people that are hearing good theology every week, but then they're not living it with their lives. And that's a really, if I'm the one getting in the way of spiritual growth, then I need to step down from the pastorship. Awesome humility. It's not about who's teaching. It's about the people of God living their lives for God in a healthy way. And whoever's teaching should be helping you grow. And if that isn't happening, then you, you have a false teacher on your hands 
or you have a prideful teacher that hasn't stepped down when they should. So that's part of the honesty. Like, I would say the same thing David was. Like, this is a family Bible study, always has been, still is. You're all, you're coming to the family Bible study. Welcome. You're glad to be here. But if you're not growing, then, then I shouldn't be teaching you. And, and, and I'm going to keep teaching my family, so we're going to keep doing Bible studies every week. But I honestly think if we're a Bible study of 20 people or we're a Bible study of 20,000 people, the truth stays the same. Leaders don't cling to leadership. They just serve, and they have a heart of service. And, I, and what David's doing here is actually repentance. He's not just saying to God he's sorry. He's also willing to let go of the very things that got him into trouble, the kingship, the concubines, all of it can go because the only thing that's important is a relationship with God. And if he needs to go back and live in the caves, he'll do it. And if I need to go back to just doing my family Bible study and taking care of my household, I'll do it. If David Rosales needs to step down from the pastorship so somebody else can teach in a way that people grow, he'll do it. Every godly guy that I know that I respect, every godly woman that I know that I respect, do not cling to leadership. They do it because they have a heart of service. And if that service isn't bearing fruit in the spirit, they let it go because it's not that important. What's important is that love of God and that service of God. And every one of us are responsible to using our gifts to help other people grow from whatever place God's put us in. And every one of us are responsible to follow and tune in to kings like David. We're supposed to walk over the Kidron with David. We're not supposed to stay in the city and just take care of ourselves. Every one of these people that walked away walked away from their livelihood or whatever setup they had. This is a stunning story in the Old Testament. It's absolutely unique in ancient literature. There's no other text that has this kind of narrative of a king just walking away and saying, I don't need it. Lord, I, what I need is you. And David's friend went into the city and Absalom came into Jerusalem. That's where we end this. Good news is there's another chapter coming. Like It keeps rolling. This is not the end of the story, but it's looking like the end of Act 2 at this point. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you. We thank you for the model of a broken spirit. Lord, if, if you had a Bible full of perfect people, we wouldn't be able to connect to it. Um, you filled your holy word with what is truly holy, and that is repentance and walking away from sin. And Lord, you showed us what it looks like. You showed us what a repentant heart looks like. Lord, if there's anybody in this room that's wrestling with sin, let's do battle with it. Lord, help them to win this week. Help them to walk away from their sin and turn from it and totally follow you. Lord, if there's anybody in this room that's lukewarm, Lord, let's end that tonight. We give you our soul and our heart. Lord, we lift you up. We praise your name. And there's nothing in this world we should cling to, even a kingship, that should matter more than our relationship with you. Lord, we have no desire to fight battles. We have no desire to get into it. Lord, we just want to walk where you are and stay where you would have us. Lord, if you bring us victory and success, praise the Lord. If you bring us struggle and purification, praise the Lord. If you bring us health, we praise your name. If you bring us sickness, we still praise your name. It doesn't matter. Lord, what matters and the only thing we have to cling to is our relationship with you. Lord, may the song of our heart be played out this week at work where everyone can see it. May when we go to the store in the marketplace, when we go to um, our friends and our family, Lord, may the joy of the Lord be abundant because that's our strength. And may we reside in it and trust in it and may you be our shelter. In Jesus' name, amen.
you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.